It was the final years of the 15th century, and the sun set over the Dominican monastery of Santa Maria della Grazie. The artist stepped back from the wall of the refectory he had been painting for the past three years. It was a scene of thirteen men eating dinner together, something the monks of the monastery would have been doing while looking at it. It was a scene that had been painted many times over the centuries, but never like this. The painter thought about what else he could do to make it appear more alive than it already was. Yesterday he had painted all day, forgetting to eat and drink. Today he had only put a few dabs of paint on the wall. Then, having received a flash of inspiration, the artist picked up the brush and continued to work. Virtuous Man, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. Over the next five episodes, we'll take you on a journey to discover five of the crucial virtues of life through the man who demonstrated them, not just with words, but with action. Welcome to Episode 1, The Curiosity of Leonardo da Vinci. Hosted by Scott Einig with special guest Martin Kemp, Emeritus Professor of Art History at Oxford University. A virtue is a behavior one conforms to in order to achieve a moral and ethically principled life through action. A virtuous man is one who is well aware of how he falls short yet chooses not to ally his flaws to define him as he seeks to better himself. Such men show that it is possible to overcome the things that keep us from achieving our destinies. Though each man is flawed and imperfect, it is in the lives of flawed men that we see the possibility for virtue in our own lives. This episode's virtue is curiosity. Curiosity is the strong desire to know or learn something. A curious person is one who nurtures the desire and passion within themselves to know. One can be intelligent, but lack curiosity. The intelligent person is powerful, but intelligence without curiosity can only take someone so far. The crossroads of intelligence and curiosity are perhaps no better exemplified than in the life of Leonardo da Vinci. As we explore his life, we will see what it means to foster curiosity within ourselves. I wish to work miracles. What is fair in men passes away, but not so in art. Leonardo da Vinci Leonardo da Vinci was born in 1452 in the small backwater town of Vinci in the Tuscan region of Italy. He was an illegitimate child, and though little to nothing is known of his mother or what became of her, Leonardo was nonetheless much loved. He was raised by his father, uncle, grandparents, and stepmother, and remained an only child until he reached his twenties when he had moved away from home. Though much of his early years are difficult to affirm, it is safe to assume that Leonardo was a curious, intelligent, and independently-minded young man. Yeah, we know very little about Leonardo's early life. He was brought up in a loving household of his uh, uncle, his uh, grandfather, grandmother, and so on. His father was making a career in Florence, so he was elsewhere. We don't know much about that, but 
as soon as Leonardo starts drawing, and we've got drawings from when he's, say, 20 or so, he looks at something and you can tell the way he looks at something. He says, why does it look like that and how does it work? I imagine he was a child already full of curiosity, full of wonder, but we can't document that because there's, there's no, no record of it. Leonardo displayed an incredible talent for drawing at a young age, and his father reportedly showed some of his work to the highly regarded artist Andrea Verrocchio. Verrocchio was so impressed that he offered to take on Leonardo as his apprentice, where he stayed for at least six or seven years, learning the tricks and secrets of art, painting, and sculpture. During this time, he received a fairly basic education in literacy and arithmetic, though it seems that even in these developing years he remained very curious about the world, even to the point of supposedly asking his teachers questions that they themselves were at a loss to answer. He obviously had a, a basic education. He didn't have a full humanist Latin education, you know, in the classics and so on. His Latin was always somewhat wobbly during the course of his career. He read it when he had to. But he had a basic education, the sort you would need for, for trade. He couldn't be a notary as a legitimate, he couldn't be a lawyer but he could have pursued a perfectly decent trade, so he would have had basic instruction in literacy and numeracy and so on. And of course, with Leonardo, with a mind like that, you don't need uh, much stimulation to take it on to the next stage. So, yeah, he probably never lost that kid's enthusiasm for asking simple but very difficult questions of things. So he, he may well have given, given his teachers a tough time. They probably thought, oh, God, it's... It's young Leonardo coming on. I'm going to have a tough time here. So, again, we can't document that. As he grew and matured and his interests expanded, his curious nature took him beyond the confines of his community and out into the natural world. Leonardo spent much time wandering around the forests and valleys and mountains, taking in everything around him. He did many things on these outings, everything from looking for fossils to studying rock formations to drawing landscapes. His drawing of the Arno River Valley, dated to around 1473, is widely believed to be the first landscape study in art history. He spent much time climbing mountains and making repeated observations of his findings, leading some to suggest that he was one of the first mountaineers. It was during these journeys that he came to believe that all things in the world, man, nature, and the universe, were somehow connected. He saw everything as interlinked, that uh, if you looked at the human body, you looked at the body of the earth, as he called it, you looked at how optics work, you look at any facet of the natural world, you look at plants, you look at trees. He could always see connections between things. So um, if he looked at the bran a branching system in the human body of the vessels, he would think about that in terms of rivers in the body of the earth, what he called vene d'aqua, veins of water. On one of these journeys, Leonardo came across the entrance to a cave. In spite of his curiosity, he stood outside, overcome by what he described as fear and desire. Fear of the threatening dark cavern, desire to see whether there were any marvelous thing within it. It is unknown whether he went inside, though it confirms his passion to seek out and to understand the unknown. This desire to understand the world not only served his scientific interests, but also heavily influenced his artistic style. His two altarpieces, known as the Virgin of the Rocks, are a testament to the scientific aspects of his art. 
the eerie background is a tour de force of geological precision and detail that far surpassed his peers, evoking a realism almost never seen in art of the time. In spite of these artistic breakthroughs brought on by his keen observations of the world, Leonardo's desire to be as accurate as possible in portraying the world in his art led him to spend much more time on his commissions than his patrons preferred. His endless curiosity would prove to be a hindrance when trying to complete a project, as his interests were constantly shifting and rarely focused on just one thing. He's always moving from one thing to another into an area we think is separate, but he sees the unity. Now that's wonderfully exhilarating because he's always providing these startling insights into the unity of nature and the unity of man in nature. But at the same time, it works against him settling on any one thing. You know, you feel every so often saying to Leonardo, come on, you know, that's fantastic, get on, get on with that. We'll then go on to the other thing later. But he had the kind of intellect that uh, wouldn't stop and he's always doing lateral transfers of knowledge which is thrilling, provides enormous insight into things but it ultimately he's got it to an almost pathological degree that it's very difficult for him to settle. I mean he's, he's not a procrastinator, he's always got something important to do, it's just not always the same thing. When Leonardo arrived in Milan in the 1480s after nothing promising in Florence presented itself, he intended to bring his ideas of military engineering to fruition. He had many highly detailed and ingenious drawings of such ideas for disposing the enemy. One of his drawings details a levered device that manages to push enemy ladders down from the city walls. Another shows cannons firing showers of stones onto the enemy from behind the city walls. He had many designs for elaborate catapult devices to throw stones at the enemy. One of his most famous designs is of a chariot contraption that has a series of vicious blades that rotate at the same speed of the horse as it moves. This device was actually built and proven to work. In addition to his drawings of war machines, he sketched everything around him wherever he happened to be. The sheer breadth of his interests is evident in the surviving notebooks he held onto throughout his life. Whether the subject was biology, geology, portraits of people in the street, human anatomy, equestrianism, astronomy, city planning, maps, architecture, textiles, or industry, it seems that Leonardo recorded everything that came to his mind on paper. Yeah, there's an enormous cache of uh, manuscripts ranging from one's uh, little, little pocket books uh, on the eye, where he, put, he looked at all the optical things, to um, the one owned by Bill Gates, which is a big manuscript about uh, water in the body of the earth and uh, some astronomy as well and the behavior of water two very miscellaneous notebooks which contain everything and, and i think probably only about a fifth of his notebooks has survived so i worked worked out at one point if all his manuscripts had survived it'd be the equivalent of about 70 university sized textbooks Upon arriving in Milan, Leonardo entered the service of the Duke of Milan, Lodovico Sforza, who would go on to become his greatest patron. In spite of all these designs that Leonardo hoped to bring to life in Milan, he was given a different commission by the Duke. He was given the job of casting an enormous bronze statue of Lodovico's father, Francesco, who was supposed to be riding a horse. Had it been completed, it would have been the largest bronze statue ever forged. Leonardo became obsessed with the project, spending considerable time drawing horses and numerous drawings on how he could possibly cast the enormous piece. 
He spent nearly 10 years on the project, eventually making a life-size model that was widely celebrated. Unfortunately, the 75 tons of bronze intended for the monument were taken to be used for the Milanese military, and the commission was abandoned. Though Leonardo was no doubt bitterly disappointed, he was not taken out of the powerful Ludovico's service. The Duke knew that Leonardo was highly gifted in a wide variety of skills, yet he often had him perform very menial and uninteresting duties in service to the court. He did all sorts of things. I mean, at the, at the court of Ludovico El Moro, Ludovico Sforza, where he was there from 1482 3 to 1499 when Ludovico was ousted by the French, he did a range of court duties. And, and some of them, obviously, kind of laying on routine entertainments and so on, uh, uh, became rather irksome as he wanted to do immortal works. In spite of having to do numerous duties that were far below his talents, Leonardo was nonetheless given much freedom to pursue his many interests while in service to Lodovico. He also once again displayed his tendency to take a lengthy amount of time to complete his works, much to the Duke's frustration. It was during this period of the Renaissance that Leonardo and the other legendary artists of his generation began to demonstrate that the artist was not a mere craftsman who was a slave to his patron's desires, but that the artist was someone who could do what they desired and commanded respect. You get letters from Ludovico Il Moro from the Duke to his secretary saying, get Leonardo on, you know, get him to finish that and get on the other wall. So there is a frustration, which is an echoing theme, but he got away with quite a lot. His generation of artists was the first generation I call the super artists, amongst whom Raphael and Michelangelo are very prominent. They're different ages, but they're part of a, a similar tendency where the artists are saying, we are the important people and we, we, we do what we like, basically. It's not quite as crude as that, but they're beginning to flex their muscles. You know, you didn't push Michelangelo around. You had to realize that he required careful handling. Leonardo is less abrasive than, uh, than Michelangelo, but nonetheless, um, people knew that these top artists were pretty willful and needed careful handling. In the midst of Leonardo's wanderings, studies, and court duties, Lodovico Sforza gave the artist a new commission. It is speculated that it was given to him not much time after the dissipation of the Bronze Horse Project. Though the Duke intended the piece to be a celebration of his regime, it would go on to become much more. It was a work of art that would forever proclaim Leonardo's astonishing artistic genius for all time. The 15 by 29 foot mural, The Last Supper. If you were wanting a picture which embodied his universality, obviously you could choose Mona Lisa, but The Last Supper is the obvious one. And that's a big complex narrative with lots of motion in it. Of, psychology of the disciples, the calmness of Christ, and the perspectival system which maps up what the Bible calls the upper room in which the, um, in which the supper, the, the meal was being held. And it's full of light, shade, color, psychology, anatomy, motion, draperies, um, landscape, it's, uh, everything's going on there. The mural was painted in the refectory of Santa Maria della Grazie throughout the late 1490s. Though crucial details about the commission have been lost and very few of the preparatory drawings have survived, it is estimated that Leonardo spent three years on the work. He approached the project in the same way that he approached many of his pieces, and that he did not want to create the Last Supper in the same manner that had been appearing in art throughout the centuries. 
Not only was his version of the scene original, and filled with a life and realism never seen before, but the method in which he painted was entirely unprecedented. Since the mural was to be painted on a plaster wall, it was intended to be a fresco painting. Fresco is a method in which the paint is applied to wet plaster, and when both the paint and the plaster dry, the colors are sealed into the plaster. It's a pretty straightforward technique, but it requires speed. He wanted to paint slowly, so he wasn't going to use the traditional fresco technique of painting in a patch of wet plaster and then it dried. So the yeah, the rhythm of painting is to is quite different from, from most people's. Because you're putting on a piece of wet plaster uh, and that's the bit you paint in a day. It's called a giornata in Italian, uh, a day's work. If you're doing a bit of sky, it can be a big piece. If you're doing a head, it will be a little bit of wet plaster big enough for the head. You'd work on that. And that requires speed of execution. And once it's done, you can't change it, other than hacking out the bit of plaster. He's wanting to paint the Last Supper like a, a, a painting on a panel. And there you can change things, you can excise things, you can lay fresh paint on top of old paint and so on. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a choice to speed of painting, also color. The color in fresco, painting in wet plaster is more limited. The colors you can use if you have a binder like oil or, or, or egg, egg yolk, which is the binder in tempera, um, you get much more intense color. So it's a, it's a choice of working method and of uh, coloristic technique. Though it was utterly extraordinary and hailed as a masterpiece when it was finished, Leonardo's unusual method was ultimately a failure. Within 20 years of the mural's completion, the paint had started to flake and fall away. Leonardo himself revisited the mural to try to find a way to save the great work, but his efforts ultimately amounted to nothing. Many restoration attempts have been undertaken over the centuries, but in spite of the best efforts of conservationists, it is estimated that only 20% of the original paint still survives. Despite all the painting has endured, including its near destruction during World War II, it remains one of art history's greatest landmarks, a work that not only revealed the genius of its creator, but demonstrated how far the art of painting could go. The Last Supper set the standard really for narrative painting. The interesting descriptions by an eyewitness who saw somebody working on it and they said he would go up on the scaffolding and stare at the picture and stare at the picture for a long time. He'd add some touches to it and then go away. So all the time he's thinking about this picture and very deep terms. He, he doesn't simply get on and paint a workable image of the Last Supper, which other artists could do, but he's thinking about all these things about characterization, about how does the mind work, how does the body work, how do expressions work, how do gestures work, and so on. Uh, he, he poured an enormous amount of understanding and also poetic imagination into it. We shouldn't forget that he valued fantasia, which is imagination. It's a word that Dante, the great poet, used a lot. It's alta fantasia, is high fantasy. So you've got all the science, but you've also got this wonderful poetic imagination to, to think yourself into that scene. It's remarkable, given the paint loss, how much still comes through, how captivating it is. It's, uh, it's like uh, hearing a piano roll of a great pianist. You know, you, you know it's very rough, but somehow or other, the central communication of consideration of 
genius in making this image. The, the image survives even the damage and the ravages and the deterioration of it. Lodovico Sforza was overthrown near the beginning of the 16th century, and Leonardo, after having spent 16 years in service to the Duke, needed to find work elsewhere. After spending time in Rome and finally leaving Italy forever, he would eventually come to be the court painter of the French monarch Francois I. He received numerous commissions, though few of them were ever completed. It was during this time that he painted the Mona Lisa, though it was not delivered to its patron and remained with him for the rest of his life. There's good evidence that he kept some of his key pictures with him. When he went to France at the end of his life, he had Mona Lisa, he probably had the Virgin Child and St. Anne, the Lost Lady and the Swan, which is an important picture, and a clutch of pictures. And I think he regarded these key pictures, which the patrons, the commissioners never got. I think he thought of them as his children. Um, and they were shown to people. We have a record of the Cardinal of Aragon visiting Leonardo when he was in France, in, in Amboise and he was shown Leonardo paintings and Leonardo notebooks, so um, Leonardo treasured these things and kept them with him. With Mona Lisa, when he left Florence in 1507-1508, basically, the picture was almost certainly unfinished. It was done for Francesco del Giaconda, the somewhat dubious operator who had all sorts of financial things going on as well, but, well as being a silk merchant. Anyway, I think it was almost certainly unfinished, and he took that picture with him and got it to a state of finish, but uh, yeah, it was kept. I think he, he knew it's a special picture. Leonardo would eventually give up painting for good during his time in France. Toward the end of his life, he would devote much of his time to court duties and various mathematical studies. Though he retained his childlike curiosity about the world, there is a sense in his writings that he was ultimately unsatisfied with the work he had accomplished. He would write, Tell me if anything was ever done. Tell me if ever I did a thing. Leonardo passed away in 1519 and was buried in the church of San Florentine at Amboise, France. People say he didn't finish many works, but my standard answer is he finished the world's most famous painting, maybe the second most famous painting, The Last Supper, and the most famous drawing, The Man with the Arms Spread Out Wide which is certainly the Vitruvian man based upon the writings of the Roman architect. And that's the world's most famous drawings. And uh, the Leonardo show at the National Gallery in London, the tickets were selling for more than Bruce Springsteen tickets on the, on, on the black market. You know, for a lifetime to do those three things is pretty good. Leonardo has much to teach us in this modern age of constant distraction. Throughout his life, he not only maintained an astonishing ability to pay attention to all that surrounded him, but he also never lost his sense of wonder and curiosity about the world and man's place within it. He was not satisfied with making a quick observation and moving on. Regardless of what crossed his path, he had a burning desire to know and to interpret what he saw to others, and to think about these things that so occupied his interest with the goal of seeing results. In an age where everything is trying to get our attention, no matter how superficial it may be, we must look to Leonardo's example and simply stop, listen, look, and learn.
This episode of Virtuous Man was written and recorded by Scott Eining. Intro, editing, and mixing by Jamie Adams. A huge thanks to Professor Martin Kemp for his expert insight on Da Vinci. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and leave a review in the comments section. And don't forget to check out more Virtuous Men on our Instagram page at virtuous underscore men and give us a follow. Tune in next time for episode 2 where we discover the judgment of Sir Winston Churchill featuring the accounts of best-selling author and speaker Stephen Mansfield.